going to hear one of Paul's sermons. Actually, the first sermon by the Apostle Paul that Luke records for us in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 13. Luke has told us a lot about Paul's preaching to this point. Well, Paul normally called Saul up until about this point about Paul's preaching, Saul's preaching in Damascus, as we saw last night, uh, about uh, Barnabas recruiting Saul to come back from Tarsus. Saul had returned after a ministry in Damascus and in Jerusalem. Saul had returned to his home city in Tarsus, um, just on the south coast of what we now think of as Turkey. Um, And uh, Barnabas uh, moved to the north and to the west to uh, retrieve Saul and to bring him back to establish the church in Antioch of Syria, We have two Antiochs. It's a little confusing. There are actually probably a dozen Antiochs across this part of the world because uh, the successors to Alexander the Great, one of the the generals who uh, became a successor to Alexander the Great, uh, who founded the Seleucid dynasty, was uh, named Antiochus. And uh, with uh, characteristic uh, humility, he named every city he could after himself. Um, we sometimes hear about the, the fourth Antiochus, Antiochus IV, uh, who was the one who had desecrated the temple around 186 and uh, provoked the revolution led by Judas uh, Maccabee and, uh, and his brothers, uh, from which uh, the, the, um, the Feast of Hanukkah comes uh, during that time when they were trying to resist the uh, the uh, imp- imposition of pagan religion on the, on the faith of Israel. But, so this is one of the Antiochs named after Antiochus I, the founder of the Seleucid dynasty. Uh, this one uh, that we're going to read about, the, an- the Antioch in Syria is, uh, you can kind of picture the Mediterranean Sea as a kind of a big um, rectangle. It's not a rectangle, but it, the one in Syria is sort of up in the in the upper right corner. This one is in the middle of Turkey, as we think of it today, uh, in a region called uh, Pisidia, uh, which was also part of the Roman province of Galatia. And uh, scholars debate about to which group of believers Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians, but I'm quite persuaded on the... I'm not going to give you all the evidence now. Ask me a question if you want. uh, That... These churches that Paul and Barnabas reached in that first missionary journey in the interior of uh, the region of Asia, several different smaller prefectures, including Pisidia there, but all part of the Roman province of Galatia, are the churches to whom Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, uh, these are those, uh, I believe, and that Galatians was uh, among the other very early letters of the Apostle Paul. I think it's helpful to think about what Paul has written to the Galatians as we hear this sermon. If you remember, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle begins to talk to the Galatians in rather blunt terms. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Jesus Christ was emblazoned before you as crucified. Having begun by faith and by the Spirit, 
Are you now going to be completed in your Christian life and your standing before God by your own efforts in, in keeping the law? There's a lot of discussion these days about a new perspective on Paul in which the argument is that uh, Paul really doesn't have a lot of argument with people obeying the law as a good thing and a valuable thing and even perhaps as a component of, uh, of their standing before God. But uh, uh, Paul wants to emphasize that you get in by grace and then you stay in by obedience. Um, well, Paul says the Galatians... That's what people are telling you. You got in by grace, but now you stay in by your own obedience. And I want to tell you that's not the way. There is a place for sanctification. There is a place for obeying the Lord. But that's not part of the, part of the equation. That's not part of the formula that presents you as acceptable before God. It's resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone that always makes you acceptable. And it's from that which flows your desire to love and please the Lord, uh, not out of a sense that you, in order to stay in, you need to rely on, uh, on your own efforts in any way, shape, or form, even grace-supported efforts. Well, all of that by way of introduction. We're actually going to come back to that at the end of this sermon of Paul. And I think it's important to think about that retrospective that Paul gives in Galatians 3. You began with the Spirit. You began by trusting in Christ as he's presented in the Gospel. The only way you're going to reach completion is the same way, depending on Christ and his work in the cross, depending upon the work of the Spirit who has given to you as a free, free gift. So, Now, all that by way of introduction, let us hear God's word from Acts chapter 13. And the the sermon uh, actually begins in verse 16, but I want to start at verse 13 of chapter 13 to set a little bit of the context here. Uh, He is in a synagogue, he and his companions, um, which include Barnabas, uh, but Barnabas is not mentioned here as Paul has already emerged as the one gifted to preach uh, the gospel in, uh, among in, in Gentile areas. This is a synagogue, so there are Jewish people present, there are proselytes present, but there are also Gentile God-fearers present. So you see it's important that we looked at Cornelius as background for this. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is on Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, this is southern Turkey now, and John left them, that is John Mark, Barnabas's nephew. John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying Seven nations in the land of Canaan he gave them their land as an inheritance. 
All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understood the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if someone tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. If we were to go on, we could read that the next Sabbath, there was greater opposition from the leaders of the synagogue. And Paul and Barnabas, well, let's read verses 46 through 47. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It was necessary that the word of God first be spoken, be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you alive for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's that sovereign grace of God about which we just sang. Not that we chose him, but he chose us. As many appointed to eternal life believed. Let's pray together. Father, write this word on our heart as well. This word preached by your apostles to a mixed group in a synagogue, to those, some of whom could trace their family tree back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, others of whom had come from Gentile backgrounds and had converted to Judaism, shouldered the yoke of the Torah, and others who were attracted to the faith of Israel, convinced that the God of Israel was the true and living God and His law for their ethical lives was binding and yet had not fully converted and needed to hear the gospel of Your grace as well. Father, we pray that You would open our hearts to hear this good news as it was preached through Your servants long ago, Your apostles and witnesses, and that uh, You might assure us of Your grace communicated by faith in Jesus to set us free, to justify us from all the things that we could not be justified by the law of Moses, but can be and are justified through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is, in a sense, Paul's inaugural sermon. Even though he's been preaching for a long time, Luke is now giving us a sample of his preaching. There are some interesting connections and echoes with Peter's Pentecost sermon. You perhaps noticed and recognized in particular that as Peter quoted from Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So also Paul here in verse 35 quotes from Psalm 16. And that both of these apostles of the Lord Jesus point out that this psalm really doesn't apply to David. We know David died. As Peter says, we know where his tomb is here in Jerusalem. Saul points, makes the same point as well. So there's that echo as, as well as other echoes as well. So in a sense, we're being shown here that now as the gospel is beginning to move, not only outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, but in phase two of the expansion, phase three of the ministry, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, the same message is being preached now through Paul and through Barnabas. One interesting note I put in your outline because uh, it, it's something that intrigues me as somebody who's also studied Hebrews a lot. You'll notice that this message fits into the category that uh, is described by the synagogue rulers who invite Paul and Barnabas to speak as a word of exhortation. Verse 13, after the law has been read, after the prophets have been read, the rulers of the synagogue say, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Interesting, because that is the term that the, the author to the Hebrews uses in Hebrews 13, verse 22, to describe his book. Bear with this word of exhortation, since I've written to you only briefly, as he says. Um, and we know from other 
Jewish documents of that first century outside of the New Testament that this was sort of the standard way of referring to a sermon in a synagogue. It was an exposition of the Scriptures that was applied in exhortation. And so here we have word of exhortation, and Paul gives a sermon, basically. It's not based on a single text of Scripture. or a lot of texts. It's almost a history of Israel, like Stephen's history of Israel. But it's, it's an exposition of the Word of God applied to the people of God. And uh, I think that gives us a good clue as to how we should understand the book of Hebrews, too. That it's, uh, I know it's classified as one of the general epistles. Uh, but we might think of it as a sermon in written form. And... Uh, maybe even helps us to understand some, some of the ways that the author to the Hebrews refers to Scripture. Because instead of saying, it is written, more often he will say, the Holy Spirit is saying. It's that verbal and immediate thing. But, word of exhortation, word of encouragement, exposition of Scripture with application. And uh, notice that Paul is now preaching, as I mentioned, to a mixed audience. Uh, really, the sermon falls in three sections And in each section, Paul addresses, the transition is marked by an address to the people. Um, So, for example, in, in verse 16, right at the beginning, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, that's the God fearers, men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God. Or in verse 26, again, we have a transition point. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. A new transition point. And finally, in verses 38 and following, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. So it's a mixed audience, some of whom are ethnically Jewish and religiously Jewish, some of whom are ethnically Gentile, but religiously Jewish, and some of whom are ethnically Gentile and God-fearers, attracted to Judaism, but not full converts. And that's in part going to explain some of the responses that we see at the end and in the following week as well. I already mentioned some of the affinities with Peter's Pentecost sermon. There are also some similarities with Stephen's message and sermon in Acts chapter 7, especially the history kind of of Israel. Uh, But Paul's focus really is in his sermon not so much on Israel's rebellion or even on God's presence with his people apart from the temple. Those were the themes in Stephen's sermon, that God doesn't need a temple to be with his people and that it's not he who is attacking Moses, but rather the people of Israel who rejected Moses and Joseph before him and the prophets after him and the Messiah eventually. Paul's point is that God has been very gracious to Israel and especially gracious in giving through David a Savior, a Messiah, who would rescue us from our sins. So he begins, God's grace in the history of Israel, verses 16 through 25. God chose us by grace, verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Here he's thinking of the call of Abraham in particular, in particular, out of Ur of the Chaldees. But he quickly fasts forward to Israel being preserved and enslaved in Egypt. God made this people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. A lot of suffering there, 
but also Israel was multiplied in the land of Egypt and became very numerous. That was actually the occasion, as you recall, of some of the sufferings imposed by Pharaoh. God was good to Egypt, to Israel, in rescuing them with an uplifted hand. If you look at these texts, especially this first section, the subject of every verb in this first section about God's good gifts to Israel, the subject of every verb except one is God himself. The one exception is they asked for a king, verse 21. And God gave them Saul, but we'll come to that. God rescued them by an uplifted arm. And here Paul is echoing, at least not directly quoting, but echoing that uh, imagery of the power of God conquering Egypt that we find in Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and 9. God bore them or bore with them in the desert. Um, And that's an interesting statement in verse 18. For about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. If you have the ESV, you see a little footnote at the bottom of your page, and probably some of the other versions do as well. The footnote in the ESV is he carried them. The difference there is in the spelling of the Greek verb, uh, the presence or absence of one letter makes the difference between God having to bear with his people as they frustrated him and tested him in the wilderness, and God gently carrying them along. And the manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, are almost evenly divided. I'm persuaded that the spelling carried them is is perhaps a better fit for what is going on here and a better fit for the the text that Paul is probably intending to remind the people of in Deuteronomy 1.31 because he's emphasizing the grace of God at this point. And he's emphasizing that theme that God carried his people along in the wilderness. But it could go either way because Israel did a lot of frustrating things in the wilderness as well. But Paul is just wanting to heap up for his hearers this reminder of all that God has done. He knows how forgetful we are, how much we need to be reminded of the history of God's faithfulness to his people. So he's doing what some of the Psalms do, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 78, reminding us of the faithfulness of God and at least in some of those psalms, also of our unfaithfulness or Israel's unfaithfulness as a people. It's important to be rooted in history. Americans need to hear that often. OPCers probably don't, but Americans in general do. Because, you know, Americans think that if it happened the day before yesterday, it's old news and probably not any significance to us. Uh, And we become rootless as a result of that. And so it's such a value for us to be teaching and preaching the whole Word of God, to be singing the Psalms, to be singing the historic hymns of the faith, as well as the good contemporary stuff, like we have done some in these sessions, and as we did last night with the Tuggies as well, you know, to be reminded of those things. That's what Paul is doing here. Remember the faithfulness of God. He chose you, he rescued you, he carried you, he settled you in the land of promise, He dispossessed the seven nations of Canaan and (coughs) cast them out of the land that he had promised and settled the people in the land over that period from 
the time of their going into slavery in Egypt to the time of the conquest, roughly 450 years. And then when they asked for a king, God gave them a king, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, the son of Kish, for 40 years. Now, Saul could have, Paul could have said a lot about that Saul. I mean, that's the Saul that he was probably named after. Um, he could have said a lot about the fact that the king that they asked for proved not to be the king that they needed by a long shot. started well, as you remember, uh, in depending upon the Lord and his strength to lead people, the people of Israel into battle, uh, but then became disobedient to the Lord in unbelief. Uh, and finally, when we meet his successor coming onto the scene, the one who should have gone out against Goliath, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, namely the king, to do representative battle on, the, on behalf of the people of God, is quailing in terror. And when the shepherd boy comes forward and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to insult the God of Israel? Somebody needs to go out and fight him. All that King Saul will do is say, here, have my armor. <laughs> Let me help. Let me have my armor. Um, this is really off off topic here, but I just have to say because I've seen it in so many Sunday school stuff, uh, the pictures of little boy David in the big armor of Saul, that's not why David did not use armor, Saul's armor because he would have tripped over it he says very clearly in 1 Samuel 17, I can't go out in this armor because I have not tested it I don't know whether this armor is any good, I haven't put it to the test he goes out in the armor that he has tested what does he say to Goliath? You come against me in sword and, with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in, here's his armor, the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have insulted. David goes armed in the name of the Lord. That's the armor he's tested. Well, as I say, Paul could say a lot about Saul and his failure, but he bypasses that because, although I didn't, because his main theme is... <laughs> God's grace to his people. God's gifts to his people. So he simply says, verse 22, When God removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now that, of course, by contrast, reflects rather badly on King Saul. But it's interesting, the phrasing from the Old Testament that Paul has picked up at this point to describe David. He's actually woven together wording from three different texts of the Bible. I have found David my servant comes from Psalm 89, verse 21. I'd love to take us to Psalm 89, but I know we don't have time for that. It's a psalm that extols the faithfulness of God in establishing David's throne for about the first half or so, and then suddenly turns in midstream and says, but Lord, now David's sons have been cast down, thrown, uh, crowns trampled in the dust. How long can it be until you show your faithfulness to David and to Israel by restoring him to the royal power. It's a psalm that cries out for resolution 
and doesn't really have much resolution within the psalm itself, cries out for resolution, cries out for the coming of the true Messiah. But this comes from early in the psalm, I have found David my servant. The next part, David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart, is part of the prophet Samuel's rebuke to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And then the last part, he will do all my will, comes from Isaiah 44, verse 28. He is my shepherd and will accomplish all my will. And that is describing King Cyrus, the Persian king, who will give the order that the temple in Jerusalem may be rebuilt. A pagan Gentile king. But these words are applied now to David as well, because obviously the man after God's heart will do the will of God. So, David the man after God's own heart. Again, there are a lot of ways in which David shows himself not to be the king that Israel needs and longs for. He has his own pattern of sin and rebellion that leads to the division of his house, uh, that leads to his own exile from his capital for a time because of his sin against Uriah the Hittite by taking Uriah's wife, and then to protect his sin, taking Uriah's life and bringing shame on the name of the Lord. David is not really the king we're longing for either. But, verse 23, of this man's offspring... God has now brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God promised a Messiah who would come, a Savior who would rescue the people of God. He will come back to that, but he focuses in this conclusion of the first part on the ministry of John the Baptist. When the time for the Savior to be unveiled was coming, God sent a forerunner, John the baptizer. John who would point to one greater than himself whose sandals John was unworthy to untie. God's grace and favor in the history of Israel. The Old Covenant period, including John the baptizer, the last of the Old Covenant prophets, even though we read about him in the New Testament scriptures. Then, transition point. Again, addressing his audience. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent this message of salvation. And then he begins to talk about the ministry of Jesus and especially about his death, that the leaders and the people of Israel did not recognize him, were ignorant of him. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8? The leaders of this world did not recognize Jesus because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were ignorant. They didn't recognize Jesus and they didn't recognize the prophetic word. Now, of course, neither did Peter (laughs) during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Jesus had to be very gracious and patient in teaching his disciples that the prophecies were focused on a suffering Messiah who would then enter into his glory. Uh, but Peter is saying they didn't recognize the one 
who was sent to save them. They didn't recognize the prophecies that had been spoken, that were read every Sabbath in the synagogues and in the temple. And so they condemned him to death. Though he was innocent, though there was no charge that could be laid against him, he was condemned to death. They brought him to Pilate. The miscarriage of justice was on the part of the human beings involved, absolutely inexcusable. The ignorance didn't excuse them. But at the same time, what they were ignorantly doing was actually fulfilling the saving purpose of God. Though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. There it is again. That echo of Deuteronomy 21. He underwent the curse of one hanged on a tree, but it's so evident that the curse was not the one that he deserved. It's the curse that belonged to others. Because, as we see here, it was written about him that he would suffer this rejection on behalf of others. They were fulfilling what was written about him in the prophets. They laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And then we go on. He appeared to those who were his witnesses in Jerusalem. And we now, sent out from Antioch, bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he's fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. And now Paul begins to quote scripture. Those, you know, I'm not just talking about prophets in the abstract. I'm talking about concrete prophecies. From Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Of course, the the New Testament makes clear that before his incarnation, Jesus is eternally the Son of God. At the incarnation, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God Most High in the announcement to Mary. From his conception in the womb of the Virgin, from his birth throughout all of his earthly ministry, he's the Son of God. Acclaimed as the Son of God God again in his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, But interestingly, the New Testament writers, typically when they quote Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, focus especially on the resurrection. That's what Hebrews does in Hebrews 1. That's what Paul is doing at the beginning of Romans 1. The resurrection is Jesus' entry into his status as the Son of God in power. As to his identity, he is always the Son. Before the incarnation, in his humiliation, at his baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration. But as to his status as Messiah, he is Son of God in power now by virtue of the resurrection. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Especially by raising Jesus from the dead, God has fulfilled this second psalm. And as for the fact of God raising from the dead, again, now Paul conflates two passages of Scripture, Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16. Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Psalm 16, I will not give my Holy One to see corruption. The verb give appears in both of those quotes, sometimes as the ESV translates it a little differently here in verse 35, but still faithfully. 
And the word holy appears in both. And that's why Paul brings them together here. Jesus is holy and therefore is the rightful heir to the holy and sure blessings of David, including first the blessing of resurrection vindication, being brought out of the death that sin deserves, which Jesus endured for those who deserve that death, and into the resurrection and the new life that righteous obedience deserves, which Jesus himself deserves, and which he now graciously shares with us by virtue of our union with him by faith. So by bringing Christ up from the grave, God has secured salvation for us. In Christ the Holy One, God granted David's highest hopes and blessings, not only to Jesus, but to us who are united to him. And Paul concludes this second section with this wonderful statement of this blessing uh, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And then at verse 38, he begins to turn toward application as he again addresses his hearers, brothers. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, now here's what it means for you, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed. The word that Paul uses there is the word that in his letters is typically translated justified. Is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. By faith, not by the law of Moses. Trust Jesus for forgiveness and vindication. Through Jesus, God promises to every believer forgiveness of sins and justification from all the offenses that the law of Moses cannot clear from our record. So in Paul's inaugural sermon here, at least in the book of Acts, we hear the good news of divine grace bringing justification through faith alone. The gospel that is so richly revealed in Paul's epistles to the Galatians and to the Romans. You can imagine having preached this sermon in Antioch and the same message in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and having his heels almost hounded by the Judaizers who would follow along place after place that he went and would say to the Gentiles, yes, believing in Jesus, that's a good way to get in. But if you want God to really be pleased with you, you need to adhere to the commands that he gave to Israel. All the commands. You can imagine why Paul is so frustrated when he writes Galatians. Weren't you listening? Who bewitched you? You began by faith in the power of the Spirit. God gave you His Spirit as He gave you faith. Is He now going to perfect you in some other way? Paul belabors the point in his thesis statement in Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We know, and he's, if you remember the context there, he's talking about a confrontation that he had had to have with Simon Peter, in the other Antioch, the one back in Syria, when Peter had been having good fellowship with Gentiles at the same table. And suddenly, under peer pressure from some who had come from Jerusalem, Peter pulled back and sent the signal that the Gentiles weren't quite good enough because they weren't quite law-keeping enough. And Paul says to Peter, and he's, he's kind of transitioning from his confrontation with Peter to talk directly to the Gentile 
readers of Galatia, but he says, we know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. So we too, that is, even we Jewish people who were in the covenant, we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times in the space of those two verses, Galatians 2:15 and 16, Paul says, by faith, by faith, by faith. And three times in those two verses, he says, not by keeping the law, not by keeping the law, not by keeping the law. Now, will Paul say that it's a good thing for believers to keep the law? Of course he will. To keep the moral law of God is a response of gratitude to, to the grace of God. But it is not the basis of our being justified, forgiven, and declared right in God's sight. That's, that basis is all and completely Jesus and what he's done, which we receive by being united to him by faith alone. Paul makes the same point over in Philippians 3. I alluded to this passage last night where he talks about all of his credentials in law-keeping. That he was circumcised on the eighth day, verse 5, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I did as as well as anybody could do if our standing before God rests in any sense on our own performance. But, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's Paul's message. I mean, that's what he's experienced. That's his testimony that he is exhibit A of the fact that attempting to gain one's assurance on the basis of one's performance in relation to the law is always a dead end. And he's exhibit A of the amazing grace of God, the gift of the righteousness of God in Christ that is by faith and by faith alone. Or as Paul says to the Romans, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law that is the law of Moses could not do was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering for us. Grace received by faith alone. But Paul doesn't end the sermon there. Wouldn't that be a great place to end the sermon right there at the end of verse 39? But he doesn't. He ends the sermon with a word of warning. Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look out, you scoffers. Be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells it to you. He's quoting from Habakkuk 1.5. 
And in Habakkuk, the marvel that the scoffers would not believe was the desolation of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. But Paul is now applying it to the scoffing at this amazing good news of grace. Why would anybody scoff at a gospel at good news that is this good, this sweet? Because the gospel way to be right with God is so counterintuitive to our hearts. It's so insulting to our pride and our self-reliance. It's so humiliating. It's such an outrage to our innate sense that we need to do it ourselves somehow. It seems so ridiculous that God would give such a gift free of charge. Of course, Paul always has to answer that. Paul, if you say that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, then people are going to go out and do all kinds of disobedient things. The gospel seems too good to be true, and it seems to leave us nothing to do to make it appropriate for God to welcome us rather than welcoming somebody else. The gospel seems to offend our own sense of self-presentation before God. It's hard. It's hard for us to sing nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But at the same time, what a relief. What a relief to know that God has unmasked us and knows us through and through. That we can face ourselves honestly and confess that we will never in ourselves match up, not even with the work of the Spirit at work in our hearts and lives in this life, will we reach a place where we can say, now I'll stand on my own record, thank you. And we can, as we stumble, as we fall, though there's growth, we still stumble and fall, and we can still go back in that final day and say, I'm resting resting in Jesus and what He is. And that's what spurs our love for holiness. It doesn't cut the cord uh, and the connection of our desire to pursue holiness. It spurs us on. Thomas Chalmers, I know, our time is gone. I'll stop in just a minute. But I have to, I have to go this far at least. Thomas Chalmers, pastor in Glasgow in the early, late 18th, early 19th century, at St. George's Tron in, in, in Glasgow, also a professor of theology uh, at the Church of Scotland uh, Theological School there, uh, leading his church in ministry to the urban poor in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, preached a, a sermon that has become sort of a classic called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can find it online. It's a, it's, it's a little bit Victorian English, but boy, it's powerful. His point is, when he talks about the expulsive power of a new affection, he says the only way to wean our hearts from the unworthy and sinful affection for the world is to replace that affection with a bigger affection. Nature abhors a vacuum. And if you simply tell people, don't do sin, it's bad for you, that's not effective. He says what you've got to do is overwhelm them with some other new, more beautiful affection. He talks about young men interested in girls. And he says, once you get the girl, then you want to make money. I can't imagine losing that first affection for the affection for making money. But he uses some illustrations. But he says, here's the thing. What the gospel does is that it overcomes our heart, our love for sin, 
with a love for Christ. And the way it does it is by assuring us that our place in the heart of God is secured by the finished work of Jesus Christ, his obedience and his sacrifice for us. So he says the free gospel and the freer the better is the only thing that will fire our motivation to love sacrificially, to obey when obedience is costly. Instead of dampening our motive to pursue holiness, it fires our motive because now we serve out of love for God, not out of some kind of a bargain with God. I'll do this much so that he'll show me grace. No, it's, spon- it's, it's a spontaneous response of love because of what God has done for us. That's what Paul sees and shows when he goes back to these Galatian folks in the letter to the Galatians, and he says, you need to know the gospel. And in the gospel, and trusting in the gospel, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit as a response of love to the amazing love that God has shown us in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, how thankful we are that you have loved us so, that you have given the Savior, and a Savior not only for Israel, but a Savior for the nations as well. A Savior in whom we find forgiveness of sins and justification. The justification in terms of all the things that the law could not give to us on the basis of our own efforts. Because Jesus has kept the law perfectly for us and endured the law's curse on the tree for us and now lavishes all that he has a right to, lavishes these things on us as a free gift which evokes from our hearts love, gratitude, and a longing to please you, not for fear that you will reject us, but out of the assurance that we are your children, secured in your heart forever. We thank you for this amazing gospel of grace that shatters our pride, but then lifts us up in grateful love to you. We pray in Jesus' name.